But I think there's been this fear that exercise is somehow going to be dangerous. Uh, and it's quite the contrary. After that first day, when you, they say you have cancer, there's a new person born. You know, there's this thing called new normal. I, th I think they don't really maybe understand how much it's going to help them. Each patient and each survivor is going to be experiencing different side effects, different experiences. The positive is that it's, it's never too late. Welcome to the REACH podcast, where you'll hear from researchers, doctors, and patients themselves on how exercise, nutrition, and lifestyle behaviors can reduce cancer risk and improve survivorship. I'm your host, Kieran Fairman. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the REACH podcast. We're continuing our little mini-series on bone physiology and, and bone interventions. Uh, particularly as it relates to exercise oncology and today is a really cool chat with Dr. Kerry Winterstone who is a professor at Oregon Health and Science University. Um, Kerry has done a phenomenal amount of work, comes from a really uh, strong bone physiology background and has taken that to, to the exercise oncology field and really furthered our understanding of how exercise um, can be tailored to, to try and target bone. Um, we've kind of understood or, or listen to Alex talk about how difficult it is to modulate bone. Kerry does a really good job of expanding on this and talking about some of her interventions, particularly in breast and prostate, where this is a, a, a bit of a concern. Kerry's also moved into this space of uh, couples exercising together and trying to see if we can uh, instill that kind of uh, social aspect of, of getting couples to exercise together and has done some really interesting pilot work and is building and working on a current trial right now so it was just an all-round great chat to talk about one of the the leaders in our field who has been at the, the the cutting edge for the last decade or so and get her thoughts on um what she's up to and, and where she thinks the field is going as well so hope you enjoy the chat hope you enjoy the little mini series um i'm off to acsm um we'll hope to pick up some some cool interviews at acsm uh coming up in may and we'll be back uh shortly after with some Cool new episodes coming out. So enjoy the chat and we'll talk to you soon. I've been a long time admirer of your work and I think it's uh, the work you've done over the past decade has been phenomenal and um, especially the work you've got coming up, I think it's going to really contribute to our understanding of how to uh, effectively deliver exercise programs to, to individuals diagnosed with cancer. Before we get into all the, the stuff that you have put out and the work you've done, uh, it's probably best to start with a, a background by telling us a bit about yourself and um, what you're up to now. Sure. Yeah. Well, thank you for the kind words. Um, <laughs> I, yeah. So I right now am a research professor um, at Oregon Health and Science University. And my primary department is School of Nursing. And we'll talk about why I'm in that department maybe a little bit later. Um, and then I also have a role in our Knight Cancer Institute here where I oversee a research portfolio of cancer prevention and control. And then I also co-direct a community partnership program um, that is a granting program designed to fund community organizations to tackle cancer-related um, issues in their community. So um, a little bit more just beyond research and trying to get into implementation. But by training, I'm an exercise scientist, so I have a bachelor's degree 
in physical education back when we used to call it that uh, <laughs> from University of California, Davis, and then a master's degree in exercise science. And that's where I started some of the bone work that I brought into the cancer field uh, and then went on and got a PhD in human performance at Oregon State University. Um, and and then a uh, couple of positions later landed uh, at this academic medical center kind of pursuing exercise oncology. It, it's something I always wanted to talk to you about, your position in um, the School of Nursing, where, you know, you do some really phenomenal work in terms of the resistance exercise and the addition of impact exercises. And if I'm looking at that at face value, <laughs> I would say a nursing <laughs> school would be the last place to go to try and do that. So... You know, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I would have agreed with you. So it wasn't necessarily, um, none of this is where I thought I would end up, to be honest. Um, so my uh, original academic training is in bone physiology. Um, so I grew up in a bone research laboratory that was focused on um, primary prevention of osteoporosis uh, and prevention of fractures. Um and, uh, you know, that that's where we kind of started looking at exercise in this very prescriptive way, um, was really aimed at uh, kind of a bone health outcome. And I was pursuing that work uh, after my, uh, after I finished my, my, my PhD, and I ended up uh, learning about a woman named Anna Schwartz, and you're probably familiar with Anna. Mm -hmm. uh, she was at, at the time, was at this institution, Oregon Health and Science University, um, but doing very important and early work on using exercise for symptom management in women with breast cancer, and was looking for a colleague, kind of a, a complementary set of outcomes um, to her symptom measures that would start to look at body composition and bone health as other endpoints that might be um, impacted by exercise. And that was really at the time when, this was even before aromatase inhibitors came out for breast cancer. Um, but there was some epidemiologic work that was starting to show that fracture risk might be elevated in breast and prostate cancer survivors, um, and definitely starting to see unfavorable shifts in body composition and that wasn't Anna's expertise, um, but it was mine. So we had a meeting one day <laughs> um, up, in, up in Portland when we were visiting the area. I mean, we, um, this is where I got my PhD, so we were kind of coming back for a visit. And um, she asked me to come work with her. And I'd say the rest is kind of history <laughs> at that point. Um, so she was in school of nursing because she's an oncology nurse scientist. And that's how I ended up. Um, in a nursing program, and I was pleasantly, pleasantly surprised um, by colleagues, um, including Anna, but besides Anna, who were other oncology nurse scientists who were um, doing really good science, uh, again, mainly around symptom science, but also I'd say more so than some of the other um, kind of medical uh, investigators were looking at um, attributes about the patients that were more patient-centered. Right? Uh, and I learned a lot about 
uh, oncology, which was a completely new field to me. It wasn't one that I ever thought I would move into um, in a very short time, but in a very holistic um, kind of way. So um, I'm very glad that this is where I landed and, and really attribute um, the beginning of my career in this area to these nurse scientists. So how was your facility set up then? You know, do you, in terms of access to, you know, exercise facilities, was that there when you got there? Did you have to put it in a lot of groundwork to, to get relationships set up? Well, I say this is where I got lucky. So, you know, it's um, a couple of parts hard work and a couple of parts luck oftentimes. Uh, it, uh, at the school, we happened, when, when I came here, we, we had a dean who actually uh, was a dean of the School of Nursing, but it had a, a master's degree in exercise science. So she um, was a proponent of exercise-based research. She was in more in the cardiovascular field, um, but another colleague had, had gotten a very large uh, NIH grant um, to do an exercise trial in fibromyalgia. And with that funding, she they built her an exercise room. And so when I came to the school, um, I got to benefit from that space. And uh, I definitely empathize for people <clears throat> who are trying to jockey or create that kind of space. Um, we actually have a lot of people across campus coming to try and use the space because it's so unique. Uh, so that that was a little bit of luck. I will say that, um, you know, even with that, it, it has been really helpful. Um, but if, if any of you ever come to visit Portland and see where our, our facility is, it's um, up on a hill <laughs> above <laughs> the rest of the town and um, is not necessarily very community friendly. So uh, while we have the space, it, it presents a barrier to trying to get um, patients that are not at our medical facility to participate in trials. So we have in the last five, five to seven years started to um, create connections in the Portland metro area and kind of outside of working with different facilities to run exercise programs at their facilities. And those can range from, um, you know, athletic clubs to community centers to churches, to community oncology clinics. Um, you know, one of the ways, one of the features about our exercise programs is that they are not dependent on um, uh, expensive exercise equipment. And so that's afforded us the ability to be a little bit more mobile, I think, than some other programs. Yeah, and I, I guess we'll talk about that in terms of implementation um, down the line. Let's start with, you know, you, you've done a great job of kind of giving an overview of and you mentioned the the fracture risk, and I guess that's kind of where some of your work started in just profiling um, bone health in in individuals with cancer. Mm -hmm. So one of the first one of my own independent studies once I came to start collaborating with Anna, um, and again I this was before aromatase inhibitors were were widely used or kind of on the market. Uh, I was interested in looking at um, longitudinal changes in in bone health that were associated with um, chemotherapy-induced ovarian failure. So um, this was a population that was vulnerable to bone loss and early onset osteoporosis, but not very well characterized. Um, so we started to do 
some work uh, related to that. In the middle of my longitudinal study, um, aromatase inhibitors were were approved. So, um, it, you know, that always slightly changes the course of your work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, you roll with it. And, you know, it was really during that time, you know, when you're early on, you actually collect your own data instead of hiring staff to collect data for you. <laughs> and uh, old DEXA machines were very slow. So you have a lot of opportunity to, to have conversations with, with your research participants. Um, and I learned early on that the uh, inform that patients were really not given much information about some of these um, side effects that were associated with their cancer treatment um, and what they could do about it. And that, that was really kind of the, the pivot point for me to make a decision to stay in this field because I was quite shocked that the information that I was seeing in the literature was never making it to, to clinical practice. Um, and I felt at that point that I could have an impact um, on these women if I could do this kind of work and, you know, help facilitate getting this information and raising awareness um, for women going through breast, uh, breast cancer treatment. Which is insane when you look at uh, one of your your earlier studies, you know, when you described your facilities there and people who are who are running these trials know how difficult it would be to have completed a trial like yours in in uh, a year of resistance exercise and 106 um women with, with early stage breast cancer is is nuts so it's a credit to, to you and your team for pulling it off but what i really enjoyed about that trial and a lot of work in in particular is the inclusion of impact exercise um particularly in this clinical population where traditionally we're taught to be gentle and be careful and um, a lot of people might look at something like impact exercise and, and see, you know, kind of become fearful of it, even practitioners themselves. So let's chat a bit, a little bit about that protocol and what the rationale is in terms of, you know, bone adaptation uh, for inclusion of impact exercises. Yeah, sure. So this is this is where I think I, again, was kind of a benefactor of things that were already established. But the work that I was doing prior to coming into um, the oncology setting was in identifying kind of what what are the types and and kind of nature of of loading forces that were more osteogenic, um, and then how do we once we identify what those are, how do we um, develop a prescriptive program, right? That that it incorporate those principles. So some of the very early work at Oregon State University, um, which only started because of the availability of DEXA. And so once that technology um, was available, then you can start studying <laughs> bone health, right? Versus otherwise you have radiographs and fractures. Yeah. And so that, the my PhD advisor had the first DEXA machine in the state of Oregon. Um, that's and then crazy. developed her research laboratory around it. Yeah. So she, she trained at Stanford University and then and then came to, to Oregon State University and and then started this laboratory. And 
So, you know, then you can have all sorts of fun. And so she, one of the first things we did, the other benefit of being a, you know, a four-year institution in the U.S. with um, athletics being such a big part of um, the collegiate world was to kind of do a cross-sectional study of athletes who varied quite a bit in their loading characteristics. You know, kind of recognizing Wolf's Law, and that in terms of the way that bone adapts, um, but just doing a, a straight um, across the board comparison of um, supported, so cyclists and swimmers um, to athletes who, um, you know, you think might have some impact forces like from, from running um, to high muscular forces like weightlifting, and then you get these high impact forces, gymnasts, wrestlers, volleyball players, basketball players. Um, And then you can also look at unusual loading patterns. So racket sports and soccer and um, where you're getting lateral forces and, you know, kind of these unusual loads. Uh, So there is a number of uh, groups that were doing that kind of work, including our research lab and what we found from that were that you know athletes who participated in sports where there were high ground reaction forces um like gymnastics and wrestling just think how hard they hit the mats Hmm. um and basketball and volleyball had bone density that was 20 to 30 percent above their normally active peers and athletes whose body weight was supported swimming and cycling had bone density that was below that of their age regularly active um, peers and then runners like really good runners don't really go vertical very much (laughs) And, and so they they minimize their impact forces and their bone density isn't really that much higher than someone who's just regularly active so that was that was kind of the very foundation of how we got to the idea of including impact exercise in an osteogenic training program. Um, but knowing that we couldn't, you know, have premenopausal, postmenopausal women doing gymnastics, um, <laughs> we we just used um, simple jumping exercises uh, as a way to create that impact. And there was actually um, Joan Bassey was a investigator in the UK that also did some very seminal work using um, jumping programs to to uh, show that it was a very effective um, osteogenic stimulus. Uh, so p- part of my PhD work was in applying that, that concept. So you, we pair the impact exercise, which delivers um, a strong ground reaction force that then is actually able to get you know, a fair amount of that force translated to the hip. Um, and then some of that will actually continue and, um, to affect the spine. But then to pair that with resistance exercise um, and specifically using a resistance exercise that would put some type of a force on the bones that they are attached to. So we don't do bicep curls and tricep extensions <laughs> when we're trying <laughs> to change, uh, right, to, to apply forces to the spine um, or, or to the hip. So impact forces and high muscular forces at the sites of interest, which are the hip and spine became the program that we 
a um, several of us in our laboratory started to test in different patient different these weren't patient populations different um, kind of otherwise healthy populations. Uh, so then when I came into the cancer field, um, I took this old concept in my in my uh, original field <laughs> um, and brought it into the cancer world where it was completely novel, right? Because no one had, no one really came with that expertise. And I think that's where you started to see exercise oncology really mature was with the collaborations with the, the clinical researchers. So the, it was already happening in the clinical setting, but not necessarily in partnership with exercise scientists or biomechanists or engineers that could um, bring the right kind of exercise <laughs> yeah. to address the, the right problem. So we got points for being novel <laughs> uh, in, in the cancer world. But um, I will say, you know, we had, we had to tread carefully because I, as you know, I mean, the reason why we repeat these studies um, of exercise in cancer patients is because we don't know what the tolerability is and can we um, get people who've gone through treatment or going through treatment to do the same, receive the same dose of exercise that we know is effective. Um, does it, can they achieve that? Uh, and if they can't, does the dose that they can achieve still work? Uh, and then also in the case, because we tested this in breast and prostate cancer, we had to consider that we had competing forces with hormone therapy that mm. might kind of um, counteract any benefit from exercise. And you saw some pretty powerful results um, in in relation to the impact exercise in bone. Yeah, I'd say, I'd say we got... Um, Clinically meaningful results. Hmm. <laughs> they they didn't necessarily achieve the same magnitude that you know we've seen out outside of cancer, but we also um, were a little bit more uh, conservative in terms of dosing, um, and you know we had, part of what we were trying to do was just establish tolerability. And in the postmenopausal breast cancer survivors, independent of whether or not they were on hormone therapy, we found that this program could um, offset bone loss. Uh, and then we did, you know, kind of a parallel trial in women with um, early onset chemotherapy induced ovarian failure, and found um, a slightly better benefit. But these are younger women, so it's, you know very hard to measure compliance to this program. You can measure experience, but right. Compliance, which I define as, did you do the prescribed program? You know, some people jump higher than the person next to them. And yeah. that's hard to measure. Um, but if our younger breast cancer survivors might've trained a little bit harder and then we saw a slightly better response, but only when they were out of their early postmenopausal period. Um, Otherwise, when they were in that very early postmenopausal period, I think either any benefit of exercise was masked by early estrogen depletion. Um, I don't think that their effort was any different. 
I just think bone is at that time point, bone is responding to the loss of estrogen and also to the stimulus of exercise. But within about a year, that response to estrogen depletion has normalized. Mm. And so then relatively speaking, the exercise stimulus is a little bit more powerful. And I think it's, it's interesting, you know, as you said, powerful probably wasn't the best word uh clinically <laughs> meaningful uh uh findings i think it's interesting that this could be a way as you said if you're looking at preservation rather than building could be a useful tool to to include in prescription you know, particularly once that year-long um kind of marker is set in where you may have a more favorable uh response to the exercise stimulus uh, but also, you, you kind of mentioned throughout a lot of your work, and I think it needs to be highlighted that the bone adaptation is site-specific. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so that's why we're very selective about the kind of exercise program, and I'm a little bit more skeptical of things that are less selective, that they're the right prescription. Um, we did, uh, outside of cancer, a study um, that demonstrated the site specificity because we had a group of women who were doing um, upper and lower body resistance training plus impact exercise, which is pretty much a hip stimulus. Mm. And, and, and then a group that was only doing lower body resistance and, and impact. And in both groups, the hip improved because they were both getting the lower body stimulus. And only in the group that added upper body resistance training did we see a ch- an improvement at the spine. So if you want to improve the spine, you got to load the spine. <laughs> <laughs> want to improve the hip, you have to load the hip. So um, it, it matters not only the general mode, but the specific exercises matter in the case of bone and in the absence of you know or or at the very least a maintenance of of bone mineral density could the argument be made for um in spite of that improvements in potentially lean body mass or at least physical function and strength um could you know in terms of an overall benefit of an exercise program the bone could be important but if we're maintaining or at least minimizing the decline all these other factors can, you know, add to this reduction in risks of, of falls and fractures. You know, if you're strong enough to resist forces causing you to fall or things like that, those improvements can, can be um, beneficial too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's that's where our research has kind of moved toward now. I don't feel like we've, we're fully done in terms of bone outcomes. It's just, right, there's only so many grants you can do at a time. And, uh, we, at the same time we were working on, um, the bone problem. I was also doing some more descriptive work on the falls problem. Um, knowing from my prior training, again, you know, when you're preventing age related fractures, there was a lot of expertise and a lot of work done around falls. And there wasn't being talked about in oncology at all. And the focus clinically, even when the fracture data were becoming, um, I think, more apparent clinically, right? And people were be, being prescribed bisphosphonates and et cetera. Um, there was no talk at all about fall risk. So we, 
we started to do some descriptive work, again, tracking people over time um, and measuring falls and tracking falls. And we have, we published a paper back in 2008 or nine that showed that women, even at fairly younger ages, like 47, 50, you know, late forties, early fifties had, if they had breast cancer, were falling at kind of twice the rate as women who same, same age women who didn't have breast cancer. Um, and I think, you know, you know, from the field now that there's more attention to that, um, and so we've been up kind of, you know, on a parallel track trying to understand falls. Uh, you know, I love our bone work. I love our program. I think it works. Uh, I think it is a challenge to implement. Um, and I think it's uh, a challenge potentially to, to implement even in a structured setting um, if we were able to disseminate it well in older populations because of tolerability. Um, so we want to look at, you know, is there more than one approach to, to preventing a fracture? And, you know, the true osteoporotic fracture where someone breaks a bone and then falls down doesn't happen that often. <laughs> it's only like yeah. Less than percent of all osteoporotic fractures are this true fracture and most of the times right they're they're associated with some kind of um excessive force so all wrist fractures are obviously caused by a fall um 90 of all hip fractures are associated with a fall and half of all vertebral fractures are associated with a fall and like like a backwards fall so you know, you can you can have osteoporosis and probably not fracture if you don't have a fall. And we want to understand more what's the fall etiology associated with cancer treatment. And then again, prescriptively, based on that, how do we design the right program right, in terms of fall prevention? I think that's such a good way of, of highlighting, um, you know, almost the root cause. You know, if the outcome is <laughs> increased in fractures because of an increased fracture risk, because of all this treatment, um, can we get to the root cause quicker and prevent these where even if you have um, lower bone mineral density and a heightened risk, if the falls don't happen, the risk is is, is essentially lower than itself. Um, but that was one of the questions I was going to have for you as you were speaking about the impact um, training in terms of the tolerability itself. Uh, maybe the the attitude or if there was any apprehension of participants to doing this type of training or what sort of challenges you had with implementation? Yeah, so um, that's, a, that's a good question. A couple of things um, that, that we do to try and uh, maximize tolerability. And one important piece is that we don't introduce impact exercises for... Um, until like the third month of our training program. And that's because we spend three months on lower body strengthening um, to strengthen musculature around the knee and the hip joints. So that way, people's tolerability to start adding impact is much better. Because um, otherwise you're, you know, most of these, I'd say, I don't know about most, I don't have a number for you, but as you know, many people <laughs> um, who are at the age at which they get breast or prostate cancer 
um, start to develop orthopedic limitations, right? Bad knees, bad hips. Um, so the idea of adding impact, which is they've been told not to do, <laughs> uh, <laughs> feels very risky. Um, I had a trainer that didn't that that started to work for me. That before she started to work for me was telling people, don't ever do impact exercise. It's terrible for you. <laughs> you can't work for me if that's what, how you... <laughs> but it was really about, let's do this. This is a long game. It takes bone a long time to respond. Um, we have to do this prep work first in order to improve tolerability. So that was one. And I think that then also starts to, oh, the other thing we do is we kind of start with bow jumps, which are just like heel drops, right? And then you do jumping without any added weight. And so there are ways to slowly progress um, the the concept of adding impact. Um, we also, when I moved this program into the oncology setting, um, removed any jumping off, um, jumping fr from a height. Mm. So in my prior work where we did get a, um, a pr powerful response, <laughs> um, we had people jumping on and off eight inch boxes, right? So um, in order to increase the ground reaction forces and because this was the first study of impact exercise in, in any cancer population, my decision was to not do the boxes. I didn't know what people's stability would be like, um, uh, particularly when we did our study in prostate cancer because the men were even older. And so so we just did two-footed jumps from the ground. Um, so those were, you know, people were, um, I guess, less fearful of that kind of jump training than maybe if we'd really incorporated what we'd done before, which is kind of like a plyometric training program. Um, in, in reverse, right? So we, instead of minimizing your time on the ground, you maximize your time on the ground mm. uh, when you're trying to generate a bone force. Uh, we, we ended up having, we didn't have any injuries directly resulting from the program um, in, in any of the three studies we did. We did have to modify the program, which we defined as changing more than half of the program for more like more than half of the exercises, right? We had to change out uh, for more than half of the study period, right? So that their training program doesn't look like what we do anymore. Um, for for about, I think it was about 10 to 15% of the prostate cancer patients. Um, so there is a group where um, just because of how they come into your program, may not be able, this may not be the best program for them. I think that speaks to a couple of important points uh, in terms of the flexibility of of your program and the instructors to be able to uh, be malleable in, in that sense where it's not an inclusion-exclusion thing. If people come into your clinic um, and <laughs> you're holding up this holy grail of this is the impact, this is what we're going to do and you, you're having a look at them and you're working through your assessments and you find that whether it's orthopedic limitations or range of motion or just how they're moving or their their comfortability with, with certain exercises, having the flexibility to, to swap out at ease and understand that, you know, we may want to have this whole body approach, but, you know, if someone has 
um, painful arthritis in their shoulders and they can't get their arm over their head, probably just don't do shoulder presses. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. the, we have to have that flexibility in, in our our approach in this population in particular. Yeah, I I totally agree. And I think like that that has been um uh kind of a downside to the way that we approach exercise. Like I won't I won't change what we do because I believe in using functional training and that's um kind of what our focus always is. And so we don't do a lot of machine based training and we do more multi-joint functional weight bearing movements that we hope will transfer better to activities of daily living. Um, but with that, <laughs> we, we have to accommodate a large variety of mobility limitations, like what you're talking about. So bad shoulders, bad knees, fused ankles, uh, <laughs> you know, you name it, we've probably all seen it. Um, and it means the risk is then we don't train people equally mm. um, in our studies. And that's why, you know, Kristen Campbell and I um, got a bee in our bonnet around reporting of exercise trials and compliance to training. Because in my experience, I couldn't believe that everybody could deliver a program <laughs> everybody could do. And yet that was not coming across in the literature. And nobody, you know, people were doing a decent job of reporting the prescribed program, but very few people were reporting in any systematic way or even attempting to report besides um, attendance, whether or not people actually did the program that they were prescribed. And so that's why our papers um, on adherence to principles of training came out. Uh, in like 2011, 2012. And I think it's a really interesting area because, you know, from my mind and, and seeing kind of younger scholars look and read at these papers, <laughs> they, you're right, there's such a, they're, they're a nice polished version that don't tell the story of how messy uh, the research is. And I think one of the, one of the results of that can be that, that people then expect everything to go exactly as planned and it's panic stations when they have to modify exercises and I don't know <laughs> if I can or should I and I think a lot of this movement towards um, attention to principles training and reporting accurately what what you did um, being transparent in that manner allows us to to kind of take the pressure off and go look you know the majority of people working in a space understand that exercises have to be modified these people are going through a lot in their personal life that we have to be flexible in how we're we're working with them. It's perfectly okay if you report that accurately. That allows for a better interpretation of results. It's not a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's just it is what it is in terms of the experience of delivering exercise in this population. So let's just do a better job of being transparent about how and what we changed about what we we're doing. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think from a practical standpoint, if we're all, if, you know, at, at the end of the day, what we really want is to change patient care and, and patient outcomes. We have to be um, more realistic because it doesn't do anybody any good to try and implement a program thinking that there are no modifications necessary, tolerability is really high, and then end up putting someone at risk 
um, or, you know, uh, someone, your patient gets frustrated because they can't do the program. And, uh, but I will say it is tricky. It's very tricky to figure out um, how to quantify um, deviations in compliance. It's very tricky. And I don't have the answers and we wrestle with it all the time. Like, what does it mean? Especially when you're, when you're not just doing sets and reps and, and pins on a weight machine. Like, yeah. That's easy. It's, it's a real pair to track all that information. But when you're doing other, you know, once you deviate from that um, very kind of systemized approach, uh, it is a challenge to figure out what do you mean by a modification or what do you mean by uh, non-compliance? Like when you draw the line in the sand and say, you're not doing my program anymore. <laughs> that's been a challenge. And I, I don't know that even in our papers, we've given people solutions except to say we've got to figure this out a little bit better. Yeah, I, I don't know if you saw uh, Tormund Nielsen, uh, his paper last year on developing uh, metrics for aerobic exercise in, in the relative dose intensity and calculating, uh, they calculated METs and kind of calculated METs that were prescribed versus that were achieved and used a percentage mm-hmm. to quantify exercise um Tormund's a phenomenal dude we just uh submitted a paper to to look at um using volume load for resistance training but one of the limitations we talked about was exactly what you've just mentioned particularly with bodyweight exercises or any sort of plyometric or impact exercises quantifying volume load is easy you know even if you're going relative whether you're using machines or free weights but once you get into that plyometric space it's so hard to actually quantify that training to even give a function of what was prescribed versus actually uh, achieved yeah yeah i agree you raised this question about whether or not bone adaptations are, are, are age dependent and one of the things we did in a secondary data analysis of our trial is kind of look does the bone response vary in women who are you know um uh old versus younger old <laughs> and we definitely f- found that age moderated the bone response to exercise, but I wouldn't say that's because old bone is non-responsive. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one theory, and that is a theory that's out there. And so the answer to that is you have to apply even greater forces to get a bone response in aging bone because it's less responsive. But that practically doesn't work because, <laughs> right? Like the opposite of what you actually do. Um, the, the alternative hypothesis for that is that the older women were not training as hard um, and in ways that we can't measure well. Mm. Um, so I don't know which one it is, uh, but I do think that's, you know, again, another challenge. I don't know that like in terms of the overall implications of that changes our message um, at all that if it's that, that that it's not effective. I think it's just something that has to get taken into account when we're trying to look at responders and non-responders and what's the right exercise program, not only for the outcome, but maybe for the person, right? And kind of find that sweet spot. Coming back to the person is always important in, in even recognizing their guidelines and the purpose they serve. Um, and all the information we have, it has to be, it has to always come back to that individual, 
case by case basis and not only their physiology but their psychology as well um one of which kind of the psychological aspect leads into some of your your i'd say more recent work in the couples exercising together which is phenomenal and i i can't remember if it was last year the year before at acsm one of the things that that stuck out to me the most in you know following up your pilot trial applying for funding was that it took three or four attempts at an oral one to get funding to continue this line of work yeah take four. <laughs> oh my god <laughs> Did. My other trial took six, so it feels better than that one. <laughs> yeah, you you set the bar pretty <laughs> pretty high in terms of the amount of attempts. But people, it, it's funny when you talk to people outside the realm of academia and you talk about the funding we're going for and applying for grants, they have no understanding of the magnitude of work that's involved in, in going for these grants and putting together teams and timeline and all the work that goes into it. So to, oh, it's your your life <laughs> to continuously to well to want to believe so strongly in what you're doing but to continuously take feedback and keep going back at it um i'm sure it's an intensely frustrating process um that ultimately was rewarded so i, I congratulate you on your resilience to to keep going and and having the end goal in sight yeah i mean i um it is a tough game and we've all decided we're going to play that game for a while, I think. So knowing that and knowing that even like your most successful investigators are getting triaged or right, their grants aren't getting funded. Um, I think at least makes it feel like, you know, this is just the climate and it's, it's what we've got to, um, what we have to compete with. And you, you do have to have a little bit more persistence. I will say, you know, I've had other lines of, inquiry that at some point I just, you know, quit beating a dead horse and let them go. Um, and so for me, it's a matter of, well, two things, which ones do I feel the most passionate about? Um, and that has to be accompanied by at least feedback on reviews that look like reviewers like this concept. I just don't have something right yet. And how can I get it right? In the case of the couple study, it was a design issue and reviewers um, did not like the variety of different designs that I was putting forward. Um, so one example was to test our program against a weightless control program, you know, very traditional approach. Um, and uh, that, uh, that didn't work. And, you know, we were trying to read between the lines and figure out what is it that the reviewers don't like about this this project. And this is where I give advice to anyone who's in academia and, you know, is going to um, try this game for a while, that you, you should put your work out there, um, not only for review, peer review, um, to get funding, but you should put it out out to your collaborators and get collaborators like these multidisciplinary collaborations are really important because they may look at things slightly differently than you do if you're in this very traditional clinical trial rct mindset that they might bring a fresh idea to the table um what we figured out was that the reviewers did not want to see another study that tested whether or not exercise was good for people. <laughs> that just wasn't getting them excited. <laughs> um, 
And what they also, this is is a tricky program, right? Because we're selling two different things at the same time. This, well, three really. Um, This program can improve the patient health. It can improve the spouse health, right? Those aren't hard. And it can improve their relationship health. And we've always had a hard time convincing people that we're trying to do all three things at once. And that's the beauty of the program. But at the same time, it troubled reviewers in terms of then what's the appropriate control group? Because if I do a control group on the relationship piece, it might be um, book club with couples or something, right? But then what I lose in that um, control condition is the influence of exercise. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and so if I do an exercise control, then I lose the ability to look at the relationship piece. Um, so where we were successful was with a recommendation of a colleague that was collaborating on this grant. And he said, you know, what you really need to think about is does it really matter if couples train as a team? That's the question. It's not is exercise good for them. It's is it that much better when they train as a team? versus they just decide to both go to the gym at the same time, right? And they go do their separate things and then they leave together. And that still has benefit. So we designed a three-arm study with two control groups. Um, One group, so we do these studies in a group setting. Um, One group is patients and their partners who participate in group exercise, but they go to separate groups. So there's a patient group and there's a spouse group. So they get the benefit of being in a group with other people with the same experience, but they don't train together, separate rooms. And then, so that way we, we control for the social aspect of our program. And then the third group is more of your usual care group. So um, we design a program for the patient and the spouse and we give it to them and we, they work with a trainer for a couple of weeks to learn the program. They get a video, they get a manual, and then they are sent home to do independent exercise. So what we control for there is that both patient and partner have decided to engage in exercise. Right. And maybe just making that decision and commitment to that health behavior change has a positive benefit. So then we 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 control for that. And what we're left with in our experimental group, right, if we compare to the other two, is what is the added special benefit of training as a team? This stems from some of your, your pilot work, um, or I say earlier work, looking at this kind of partnered exercise in, in prostate cancer. Um, how, how did the rationale come about? Were you seeing um, this bonding experience? You know, where did the line of inquiry come from? Yeah, this is another one of those crazy ideas <clears throat> uh, that really came from um, a couple of observations. We ran a study in men with prostate cancer, right? This is our study focused on bone health. So it was only in patients. Um, We 
trained them in a circuit style training program. And we had one instructor to run the program. And, you know, in order to kind of maximize safety and efficacy, because the trainer couldn't train, right, be at six different stations at the same time, we had men um, partner up with another man and become training partners. So they would travel from station to station as training partners and kind of help, you know, get their weights and count repetitions and all that. And then the trainer could go and work with different pairs. So one thing we, so this is just a resource allocation issue. <laughs> but one thing we noticed was that the training partners were developing these really close friendships. They were, you know, you've, I'm sure you've trained with a partner in the gym or have been on a sports team. You get this camaraderie. So that made us kind of, you know, think there might be something to this to this partner piece. Um, at the same time, when I was in the training room, a lot of the men would talk about how they wish their wife could do the program because they really need some exercise and they would really like the program. Um, and if you've worked in prostate cancer, you, you know that um, a lot of these men are always accompanied by their partners. <laughs> so um, there's a lot of spousal support and spousal caregiving in prostate cancer. And it just so happened that where um, in the School of Nursing, one of my colleagues was a research psychologist who studied the effects of chronic illness on couples' relationship health. And I never thought I'd ever work with her, not in a million years, <laughs> because she didn't do anything related to exercise. But kind of based on hearing what the men had commented about their wives, seeing the relationships that were forming with these training teams, um, having a sports background in team sport, and then knowing Karen's work and seeing this kind of relationship strain from, from cancer, I went and knocked on her door and said, I have kind of a crazy idea. What do you think? And she said, I love it. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> so we wrote this proposal, um, kind of first of its kind. It was really challenging to figure out how to frame it. Like, yes, we want to improve their physical health and we want to improve their relationship health. Um, and reviewers didn't love it. They, they, they loved one feature or the other, but they couldn't grasp the concept that we were trying to do multiple things at once. Um, and we actually were, um, lucky that, you know, Catherine Alfano, um, she was a program officer at NCI at the time and became a very strong advocate for this grant. Um, and was kind of instrumental in seeing it get funded. So um, that's really kind of how, how the concept started. It, it was not necessarily based on it. It's the next sequence in the literature. It was based on going down into the training program and watching what happens when you're doing your studies and looking for things, you know, that may not necessarily be related to your primary outcome or, um, uh, but seeing kind of what else is, what else is happening. And then I think it's important. I don't, I don't know about other people, but, um, I consider myself a nosy PI 
and <laughs> I like to be in the training room and I um, like to talk to the participants and hear their stories and their experiences and think you learn a lot. Um, and that's where I started thinking more about, well, why, you know, it sounds like maybe we should start involving partners. Um, mm. So I, I guess I would encourage young academics or, you know, even, even trainers, like, um, get to know these people. They all have, you know, as you know, very inspiring stories. Um, but they have a lot of meaningful, important information to share. And you, you, you never know where you can um, identify a need that might be something that you can kind of creatively meet. I think it's it's such a huge point. You know, I I don't even qualify it as a as a nosy PI. I just think it's it's someone who's passionate about the ground level work. I mean, you you have to stay involved, don't you? You know, to to keep your ear to the ground, to be in tune with with the the patients or participants and what they they are experiencing. And and as you said, you know, they'll say things in passing that you kind of catch, and they start they plant a seed in your head and in ideas for the future and um. <laughs> you'll know pretty quickly if what you're doing is useful or not because you'll be told <laughs> what you're doing <laughs> is useful or not. I, I I think it's so important. You know, PIs are intensely busy and, and the pressure to, to publish and develop grants and the admin that comes with it, but as much as possible, you know, to, to be on the ground level and working with individuals on an individual level is massive to, to kind of keep those... Uh, creative juices flowing in in terms of how the population is shifting. I'm sure um, there's similarities now in in men with prostate cancer versus 15 years ago. But at the same time, the treatment has evolved, the culture has evolved. You know, individuals receiving a diagnosis are different now. To where there might be subtle differences that offer uh, an insight into how things could be changed in in interventions moving forward. Yeah, I totally agree. I just think, you know, besides the selfish piece, too, which I just get tremendous satisfaction out, you know, out of being in the training room and seeing people um, just benefit and be happy and challenged and build confidence through um, training. But, you know, it's interesting. The other line of inquiry that we're really rapidly pursuing now is in um chemotherapy-induced peripheral neuropathy. And that, I mean, I knew about that, but it wasn't necessarily something that I studied until I was down in the training room. And we do stepping exercises as one of our functional exercises, right? We put a weighted vest and have them um, do step-ups. And I was noticing when I was watching the class that there were a lot of women that were looking down at the step before they took their step. And you know, of course, we want them to be looking forward so they stay stable. And I said, you know, everyone needs to look forward in order to, you know, while you're doing your step. And then they go to the next step and they'd look down. And so I went up to some of the women after class and said, I noticed you're looking at your step when you're doing your stepping routine. And the women would say, well, that's because I can't feel my feet. And I don't know where I'm stepping. So I have to, I always look before I step. And I thought, oh my gosh, like <laughs> half of my room of post-treatment cancer survivors cannot feel their feet. And 
I guess at the time I was under the impression neuropathy went away, right? When treatment was over. And so that's when we started taking deeper dives into our data and trying to understand how long does this neuropathy last and what impact is it happening? Because I can't train people the way I want to because they're still struggling with untreated neuropathy. Which is insane when you look at that, uh, the the paper you put out I think last year where it was uh, seven years post-treatment um, or nine years maybe. Um, yeah, about six, but still. <laughs> and, and people were, sorry, yeah, and people are still experiencing uh, symptoms of of neuropathy in terms of their, their balance and sway and uh, <laughs> proprioception. It's insane. Yeah, and I mean, it, it, it really impacted our ability to train them. So I think that's the other thing that we learn when we, you know, we can't just assume that everybody, every post-treatment breast cancer survivor can go out and do a walking program because she might have peripheral neuropathy and walking outside, right, isn't necessarily the safest thing. So um, we uh, definitely, I think we're kind of surprised, but then it, that's why we're kind of bringing up you know, trying in exercise oncology to start thinking about triage and, you know, we can't, we can't put out these prescriptions and say, everybody can just do these because I think there's probably a proportion of people who can. And what do we do with the group that isn't ready for 30 minutes of aerobic exercise five times a week because they can't feel their feet or they're too overweight and their knees hurt? Like, where do we how do we bridge them? Where do they go? Do they go to PT? Do they go to small group training? Like, you know, when we get out toward implementation, I think we have to, you know, rethink what the way that we proceed. <laughs> yeah. One of the things I love that you, you started to talk about at the top of the show was was this idea of the various sites that you're you're putting this um, or these exercise programs into into work and churches or different exercise settings where there would be different resources and um, capacity to trainers all that type of t- stuff where one of my challenges or one of my continuous you know I say challenges that I face and coming from a training background where everything you know can and will be flexible and um, you need to have a, you know your training program designed for a specific out- specific outcome but it has to be malleable in a sense coming into a really strictly controlled laboratory setting where we have to have everything controlled and um the what i get lost or see gets lost in translation is the copy paste where people take that at face value and you know think that that's the holy grail and don't have the capacity or maybe the critical thinking or even the the courage to change that and be flexible in their approach where um you know especially someone like you where you you have your training in in bone physiology it requires a specific and continuous stimulus for a long time for adaptation but you also have the flexibility and understanding that look not everyone's going to be able to tolerate this not everyone's going to have the comfortability or or um the physical profile to be able to do it so you know not everyone has to do it and we have to have that flexibility when we're going out into the community and i think that's what's really interesting about this implementation space where it does allow for that more flexible approach where you you know there's a difference in efficacy in a randomized controlled trial in a lab 
versus effectiveness when you give it to the community how do they handle it yeah and we're not even there yet at the latter part of your statement right we haven't done a lot of effectiveness work we're stuck in efficacy land um mm. it's great it it's the first step but um it will be interesting to see you know if the field starts to move in that direction or some individuals do um you know how things change um once we start putting these out in the community because there's definite you know challenges to maintaining fidelity um it's been our big challenge with resistance training and never you know i'm i rarely ever do a home-based program because i just don't i think it's very difficult <laughs> to administer the kind of program we want to um like it, exclusively in a home setting and i'm not i i'm frustrated by that but i and i don't know how we solve that problem but it will probably be that, that we land somewhere in the middle um between the ideal program and a program that people are able and willing to do that's a little bit more um, accessible, right, and scalable. You know, on that kind of idea of where the field is going, do you see some more important areas of focus or, or what do you see evolve as, as the, the areas of focus in the, in the coming years? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, you know, you're already starting to see it that, um, we're moving toward more clinically meaningful endpoints. Um, I hope the days of doing exercise program and measuring fitness for anything other than fidelity are waning. <laughs> um, because I, I, I think it's a fine measure and you want to show fidelity of your program and that's the way you'll do it. But, but that doesn't necessarily translate to a clinically meaningful outcome. And we are at the point now where I think we've, um, are starting to shift the clinical viewpoint around the value of exercise in oncology care, not necessarily the funding behind <laughs> it, US, but um, we have to keep moving forward and that will take um, data that clinicians care about and that um, hospital CEOs care about. And that's not muscle strength. <laughs> it's ER visits and medication use and, you know, survival is a whole different thing and it takes a whole different um, pot of money and um, organizations in order to look at that. And, you know, people are doing that and we have those studies and a lot of writing on them. Um, but uh, I think we also need to think about how do we get these other metrics um, and there's a lot of work in looking at treatment tolerability, um, and, uh, you know, kind of biologic me mechanisms so that we can complement some of these large RCTs around, um, with survival endpoints so we can better understand what the mechanisms are that underlie that relationship. Uh, so I definitely see movement in that area. I hope we get better at um doing some work in underserved populations and i i mean um socially and kind of racially underserved populations but also um you know we, we really don't have a lot of work on much older cancer survivors 
and that is the demographic we're going to see increasing, right? The 75 and older, and we don't have, we have barely any exercise literature in that population other than maybe prostate cancer, right? And I, I don't know that we can just extrapolate what we know. Um, so I think there's some, some work, um, some very important work that, that still needs to be done. But listen, I can't thank you enough. I don't want to take too much of your time. Um, it's been phenomenal getting to chat to you and hear about your work and uh, particularly a lot of the challenges I've, I've no doubt you've experienced in trying to get this research line off the ground in that unique space in a nursing school. Um, so <laughs> one day I'll visit, but I, I, I just commend you on the work you've done and the impact you've had in our field. Um, where can people find out about you, hear about you, get in touch with you, all that good stuff? Yeah, um, I would give you a, a web address, but I don't, it's one of those long ones that I can't just <laughs> pull out to you. Um, you know, the best way I would, I would love to hear from anybody by email. Um, I'm at wintersk at ohsu.edu. Um, and I would, I would love to hear from anyone, patients, professionals, um, glad to kind of start that conversation.